Amen. We can grab our copy of God's Word open to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, page 1351 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is too far back up. Philippians 4. This is the second part of this series, Broken. Uh, this series is my attempt to uh, address various issues that we may struggle with that will sabotage our sanctification. There are uh, things that I'm trying to uh, hone in on, things that are common to our experiences, and I'm trying to stay away from uh, maybe some far out obscure struggles and so we'll deal with some various struggles as we go through this series for several weeks. Tonight we're going to look at anxiousness or stress or uh, panic attacks or whatever uh, sort of name you want to put on it, worry. And um, it's been a it's been a journey to um, I've, I've preached on uh, these topics before. I've dealt with the issue, uh, how the Bible deals with things like depression and things of that nature, but only on a surface level. And so tonight we'll try to make some progress on some things that I've said in the past. And maybe uh, if, we, if we're blessed, the Lord may come and help us tonight to really gain some insight. And maybe some of us in this room will gain some real freedom. So let's pray and ask God to help us because we certainly won't get anywhere if he doesn't help us. So let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, your word is the absolute perfect authority that rules and reigns over the universe. And Father God, we thank you for this amazing gift that's before us. And Lord, I just pray especially that you'll help me tonight as I know, Father God, that this is such a sensitive issue for so many people, Lord. I pray that you'll just through your Holy Spirit, communicate through me to individual people where they are that you might help them, Lord. I am very grateful for this faith family, the people that are in this room right now I love dearly, and I pray that you will use our time together tonight for their edification and sanctification, that you might be glorified in it, Father God. So we ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts that will receive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now... A couple things first off. Number one, I'm not a medical doctor, in case you were wondering. And uh, so whenever you're talking about something like this, uh, you know, if you went to the doctor and you were having anxiety, you would not expect your physician to speak spiritually into your life. So I don't know why everybody expects me to speak medically into their life. Okay? I'll do the best I can. I've done a lot of research, I've done a lot of study on this topic, uh, mostly uh, to help myself and to help people that I'm helping. And so I always uh, have said that if God wouldn't have called me to preach, then uh, he might have called me to be a Christian counselor. I would have loved to have been able to uh, go to seminary and study Christian counseling. I'm very interested in uh, things of that nature, and I love to help people, um, but um, I only have limited time to invest in things of that nature because I have to 
protect my time to study the scripture so that I can preach the gospel. But in the meantime, it's something that I do spend time studying and thinking about and praying about. And so when we talk about worry, I just want to, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, why are we talking about this? I mean, uh, surely everybody would agree it's a big problem, but, you know, is this maybe the arena in which we should have this conversation? Well, to that I would say yes. I would say that the gospel has a lot to say about this issue. And uh, surprisingly, in places that you would not normally expect or we don't normally pay attention to the detail in Scripture and say, wow, that's uh, interesting that's, that that's there. Like, for example, in the parable of the soils, did you ever notice that one of the soils that is unproductive is unproductive because of worry? Uh, I think I have this, Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Now, these are the ones... Uh, the seeds sown among thorns, and they're the ones who hear the word, and the cares of the world. See that word cares? That word is the same word for anxiety or worry. The deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things entered in and choked out the word, and it became unfruitful. So you see, it's a very, very important issue because it can, it can make a person unfruitful. It can unravel what the word of God is trying to do in your life if you don't have uh, if you don't have some weapons of warfare to fight against it. Now, the problem with having a conversation about worry or anxiety is that the Bible says things in such a frank and matter-of-fact way that it oftentimes just catches us off guard. It sort of makes us retreat. We're not sure how to handle it. So we're going to look in Philippians... And we're going to mainly uh, start our focus at, obviously, Philippians 4, 6, which is a very famous passage, but not a passage we really have much of a handle on. The Apostle Paul says, Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if you have ever struggled with anxiety... If you are a person who's prone to worry and you get crippled by stress and anxiety, that is going to be at the bottom of your list of favorite texts. Because it seems so not helpful. It seems so, like, who says that? You know what I mean? If you were, if you were on the brink of a nervous breakdown and you went in to see uh, your pastor for help and he he just simply handed you an index card that had Philippians 4, 6 on it and sent you home, you'd probably change churches. I mean, all that would do is make you want to punch somebody. What do you mean? How do you I mean? If I could do that, it would be like walking into a hospital room and somebody's laying there, you know, uh, with pneumonia and just looking at him and saying, stop it. Like they could just pop up out of the bed and, you know, it's not that easy. But this is the Word of God, which we talked in depth about this morning. And so God said it. He must mean it. It must be exactly the way He intended it. So how do we, how do we sort this out? Well, let's just kind of talk through this a little bit together tonight. What is the most common command in the entire Bible? Cover to cover. The most frequent command from Scripture 
to mankind. Fear not. Sometimes it's don't be afraid. Sometimes it's fear not. But that is the most frequent command in Scripture. Now that ought to get our attention. Make us think, well, that's interesting. Because that's sort of a different command, isn't it? It's different than all the thou shalt and thou shalt not commands. Because whenever a person is told in Scripture to fear not, there's one thing that's always present in that scene. Any idea what that is? Something to be afraid of. In other words, there's no place in Scripture where a person is walking along just all by themselves in the heat of the day and everything's great and an angel appears and says, fear not. It's the fact that the angel appears that they're saying, fear not, right? Or the, a voice doesn't, they just don't see a sign on a palm tree that says, hey, don't be afraid. There's always something to create fear that then is followed by the command not to be afraid. So that means that there's a lot of things to be anxious about. There's a lot of things to be afraid of. There's a lot of things to stress you out. Because the Bible says don't be afraid more than anything else. And every time the Bible says that, there's something there to cause you to be afraid. But what does the Bible say just before Philippians 4, 6? What is the very last phrase of Philippians 4, 5? The Lord is at hand. Do you know how the Bible says fear not? The Bible doesn't say fear not the way the Bible says do not commit sexual immorality. The Bible doesn't say fear not the way the Bible says do not be a gossip or do not be divisive or do not be greedy or do not covet or do not steal or do not lust. Or, it's totally different. The Bible says fear not different than it says all of those other things. When the Bible says fear not, the Bible says fear not. I'm here. Don't be afraid. The Lord is at hand. It's a command, but it's in a completely different voice. It's in a completely different context. And so the first thing we have to understand is that there's a lot of good reasons to be afraid. If you don't think there's a lot of good reasons to be afraid, then the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to convince you that you're absolutely wrong. Have you ever considered, some of you are going to leave here tonight going, man, I, now I'm really afraid. Have you ever considered that everything that you hold precious is absolutely fragile? I mean, the things that you prize above all other things are the most fragile things you can imagine. That at any moment they could just be snatched away from you, couldn't they? Yeah. So no wonder people get afraid. No wonder people get anxious. How long do you have to live before you come to the realization that the world in which we live in is out of control? At what age does a person come to the 
conclusion that really life on this earth is out of control? Is it the, is it the first time, you know, as a young child, you overhear your parents saying that so-and-so was just driving down the road, a drunk driver crossed over, and they were here yesterday, and today they're gone, just like that? Was it the, the, the moment that somebody uh, that you knew just was friends of the family went to sleep or some kid in your school, their family went to sleep and while they were asleep, the house caught on fire and they all burned up in it? I mean, I don't know, but I know this, that there was this moment when you were young. You were a long way from adulthood. Something happened and you said to yourself, wow. This world is out of control. Things can change on a dime. And so that's going to breed anxiety. It's going it's to make people fearful. It's going to make people stressed out. Now, even when things go good, even when things work out according to your hope or plan, you know, even when whatever it is you're hoping that happens with your child or whatever you're hoping, hoping happens with your job or whatever the case may be, when it works out and it works perfectly, it works exactly the way you want it to work, it's only temporary. Like tomorrow's coming. Like it might be going great today, but then tomorrow it can change and go back to the way it was or it can even get worse. Like there's no stability, there's no longevity, there's no, there's no way to quantify how long something's going to stay the way it ought to be. Have you ever just stopped and thought about all the things that you just don't need to worry about at all? It's a real short list. There's a lot of things that scream out to us, wow, we got a, this is a tough place. And we got a lot of things we need to be concerned about. We need to be worried about. And then the Bible comes along and says on one hand, well, just be anxious for nothing. But then what other things does the Bible have to say? Like, for example, Psalm 103.15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. That's encouraging. That's what I was hoping that it would say. Grass. I mean, that's what I want. I want to be like grass. That's the last thing I want. I want to be like a stone or a rock or steel or a diamond, but not grass. I was thinking of all the reasons I don't want to be like grass. Most of them I can't share with you, but there's a lot of them. I'm just going to leave it at that. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Again, not helpful. That's not helpful. You ever just, you know, see a beautiful flower and you're looking, you're like, wow, that's amazing. And, and if you know anything about anything, you know that it won't be amazing for long. It's amazing today, but man, tomorrow that sucker be wilted over and dead. So, you know, that, the psalmist goes on, he says, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. Thanks, God. I'm feeling really confident about now. And its place remembers it no more. There you go. 
your grass. Now that ought to encourage you. Now the, the command in Philippians 4, 6 comes in the context of a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing that is one of the most realistic contexts you could ever ask for. That he's writing in the midst of incredible suffering and persecution, yet it's there that he makes that statement. He makes that statement as he pens from jail, as he's in the dungeon. He doesn't write this Philippians 4, 6 when he's at the beach with a pina colada or as he's on vacation or he writes it from jail. And he says, be anxious for nothing. Now, if we've got reasons to be anxious for things and reasons to be stressed out for things, which I think we do, then we have to ask ourselves this question, how does that happen? Does anyone choose to be afraid? Does anyone choose to be Anxious? Does anyone choose to be fraught with worry and stress? Notice that if I name 20 things that God commands us not to do, all 20 of those things I could make the case that we choose to do them. God says not to, but if we do them, we made the choice to do them. But when it comes to being afraid, that's not something you choose to do. Something has to happen. Some external force has to come to bear on you to create fear and anxiousness and anxiety. And so therefore, it's not something that you you choose, but yet it it happens. See, it's not like losing your temper. It's not like, uh, you know, being inappropriate in some way or responding vindictively or choosing to be lazy or apathetic or disconnected or whatever the case, all those, you could make a long list of things that were just choices, but not, not to be afraid, not to be anxious. Something has to come to bear on our lives. All of the things that God commands us not to do that we choose to do. What do they have in common? They they violate love. You see, if you if you're selfish, you violate love. If you are sexually immoral, you violate love. If you are just name something All of those sins of commission, if you will, they violate love. But what about fear and anxiety? It doesn't violate love. What does it violate? Trust. You see, worry is a violation of trust anxiousness in the life of a believer is a violation of trust it's different and so therefore it it needs to be discussed in context like this so that we can gain some understanding on how to how to address it and how to 
approach it and how to get victory in it. God calls us to grow in love. Why? Because love doesn't come natural to any of us. What comes natural to us is a love that is counterfeit and insincere. All of us, by nature, were born to love selfishly. To love for what we could get out of love. To squeeze love like a lemon to get the juice out of love. But God has to work in us to teach us to love selflessly. That's, that's not a natural thing. And so when we, when we sin in, in commission, we violate the principle of love either against another person, against a group of people, or against our Heavenly Father. But when we, when we worry and we're anxious, we violate trust. And trust is a little bit different than love. You see, when you experience something, first of all, experience it. That you don't have to experience something to sin in all sorts of other ways. You... You can just respond in all sorts of different ways and with all sorts of different inappropriate behaviors and actions and so on and so forth. But anxiety is a response to something that seems overwhelming. It seems out of control. It seems beyond our ability to, to, to get our hands on or to harness or to... Now... We then participate in that process because more often than not, we're guilty of blowing something out of proportion, which is how we end up stressed out and having anxiety attacks and panic attacks and all sorts of things. But even though we participate, something initially caused us to experience that and to be overwhelmed by that, that we then took and ran with and, and blew it out of proportion and now we're paralyzed by the immensity of it before us. So it's something real. So understand, when you are anxious, it is something real. You're not just making something up fictitious in your mind. There's some grain of reality in your anxiousness. It may be utterly and completely out of your control. It may be utterly and completely you know, seemingly ridiculous to somebody that you're anxious about something, but there is some grain of... In other words, you're not anxious about something that's impossible, are you? You're not stressed out about something that's impossible. You're stressed out and anxious about something that can happen. It may not be likely, but it can happen. See, and the same reason why, you know... People go to the beach, but they won't go in the water because they're afraid of a shark. The odds are overwhelming. I mean, you have better odds of winning the lottery than getting bit by a shark, but that doesn't matter. It could happen, so therefore fear prevents me from going in the water or flying on a plane because it might crash or whatever the case may be. It is possible that Jaws could be waiting out there for you. Right? Yeah. So you're not just 
making something up. I mean, think about, take sexual immorality, for example. It takes a lot of making things up. You have to convince yourself of all sorts of things that absolutely, positively, 100% aren't true. And people go down that road all the time. You literally have to, have to create a false reality, and people do it all the time time they convince themselves that somehow the grass is greener on the other side of the fence now there's no truth to that whatsoever but in that moment they create this fantasy where by some stretch of the imagination they're going to be the first person in the history of the universe that's going to violate God's principle and somehow it's going to pay off for them see but it's different with with anxiety that it is possible. I've never met anyone who was anxious about something that was impossible. I, I mean, I was just thinking about like, you know, well, what would that be? Like I've never, no one's ever come into my office and sat down and said, Pastor, I, just, I need you to pray for me. I need you to help me. I'm stressed out. What's the problem? I think I'm going to turn into a parakeet. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that to me. Nobody's ever said, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just ate up with anxiety. I, I think that, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to go to sleep and wake up as a transformer. No one's ever said that to me. No one has ever said that. Now, the things that they say may seem far-fetched, but they all, you have to at least say they're possible. So what does the Bible do? And it addresses anxiety and fear. You see, that's why I think the Bible addresses it more than other things. And I think that's why the Bible addresses it differently. Because God, in His perfect way, is saying to you and me, Listen, I understand this. And I'm, I'm trying to help you with this. And so I want you to see that this is a, it's a little bit different. And so He handles it in a very wonderful and special way. Fear and anxiety are positioned opposite of trust. And God desires that people would trust Him, that, that His children who are in relationship with Him would trust Him, that it's, uh, it's a key component to your relationship with the Lord that you trust Him. And if you read the Old Testament, we see over and over with the, the children of Israel that they had, they had trust issues. And God dealt severely with those trust issues. And so when the new covenant comes around, God deals with those trust issues by placing his spirit within us. So now we have this internal, this internal compulsion to trust him, this internal capacity and empowerment to do the things that apart from him we wouldn't have the potential to do. So whenever God says, don't be afraid, what you're going to find is that there's a reason that he says, don't be afraid. You see, a lot of times God just says, don't do something. And that's it. God's not obligated to give us any kind of reason. If he just says, don't do that, then don't do it. 
But when it comes to don't be afraid or do not fear, there's almost always a reason. Don't be afraid because. Do not fear because. And then God gives us a reason to trust Him and to use the reason to trust Him as a mechanism to not be anxious or afraid. That's how He deals with anxiety. So now I've said all of this to sort of come full circle to get you to a place to realize that there is a way to address your stress and your anxiety and your fears. And it's not to just pretend that they're not there. It's not to just pretend that they're not valid or real because you've tried that and that doesn't work. You've tried that. You've, you, it's like trying to, uh, uh, to, to make yourself not have the flu. You just simply can't do it. It won't work. It never has worked. It's never going to work. But when you realize that there is some truth to your fears and your anxieties, and you realize that the reason that they're there and that they, whatever they are, they violate the principle of trust and that God, whenever he says don't be afraid, gives you a reason to trust him, now you're beginning to see, so this is how God would have us to deal with our fears and our anxieties. So... If we took the book of Philippians, for example, where the Apostle Paul says, be anxious for nothing, which seems extraordinarily harsh. And even if we, even if we say, I know that just before that he says that the Lord is near, but I'm still feeling, I'm feeling very fragile. I'm feeling very anxious. I'm feeling very afraid. I'm I'm imagining over and over in my head that things are horrible things are going to happen and that they, and they are possible they could happen. Well then let's just look at the book of Philippians. So for example, chapter 1 verse 6 Paul says being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if we take that promise for example does that promise help you trust? What does that promise mean? What that promise means is that the one who began the good work in you, the reason that you are in a relationship with him, the reason that you know him is not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. He's the one that inaugurated, gave you the capacity, the desire, the want, the will, everything to respond to him. The one who did that, the one who started that, is the one who takes full responsibility of completing that. Like that ought to make you feel really good when you feel undone, when you feel like you're a million miles away from where you ought to be, when you say to yourself, man, I am really not the person that I thought at this point in my life I would be, and all the shame begins to bear down on you. That's a verse you can quote and say, you know what? But God says that he's faithful. He's going to complete the work that he began in me. He's going to complete it. That when I get to the end of this journey, I'm not going to fall short. I'm not going to be left behind. I'm not going to get to the end and, and I'm not going to come half-heartedly into heaven. I'm not going to get some reject, rejected glorification. I'm not going to get some, you know, I'm not going to have to go to a, a second trial or, no. He's going to complete it. 
That if you're his, then he takes responsibility for the journey. That he says, listen, how whatever's going on with you and whatever you're facing and however you're struggling, I'm going to see this through. That ought to be real encouraging to you. What about Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7? Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So what did he do? He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You say, now that just doesn't seem like a great promise. Oh no, that is a phenomenal promise right there. Because the fact that he left heaven and came to this earth in the form of a man, and not just a man, but a bondservant who willingly gave his life to redeem those who belong to him ought to tell you something about your value. It ought to scream to you from the top of the universe your worth in the economy of God. You see that when you feel like God's forgotten you, when you feel like you, you don't matter to God, when you feel like the world is going on around you, but you're sort of left behind, forgotten, that God, when he was doling out giftedness and abilities and talents, he sort of missed it on you, and you don't feel like, you know, he really cares a whole lot about you. You can quote that verse to yourself. You can read that verse and pin that up and say, wait a minute, God slaughtered his son for me. For me. When you're feeling anxious, I mean, we're going to get to this in a minute, but there's, you do realize that there's a, some of you in the room that are thinking, well, I don't have this problem, and you are absolutely, totally, 100% wrong. Totally wrong. You just don't, you just have never thought about what you have. You've never, you've never really analyze what's really going on because I think all of this applies to every single one of us you see maybe maybe your maybe your fear is maybe you have panic attacks every day when you pull up to your job because there's certain individuals in there you feel weak and fragile and there's certain individuals in there that are very strong and and dominant and have authority over you and they bear down on you and so you 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 just you it, it's just crushing your 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 self-worth and your you know I mean I don't want to get all psychological here but you, you understand what I'm saying and then what you need to do is remember wait a minute Jesus died for me and, and even though there's people in my life that, that do everything they can to make me feel worthless, maybe you have a mother-in-law or a mom or a dad or a father-in-law or something that, try, that, that lives to make you feel worthless. And so when you're around them, you, you start worrying weeks before you're around them. It, you start wringing your hands and stressing out about all the details. And, you, and it's always the same thing. And you try all that you can to make sure everything's just perfect. And no matter how hard you try, they just blow you apart every single time. And so what do you need to do? The promise you need to cling to is the promise that Jesus died for you. That they may not see your value, but they don't count because the King of kings and the Lord of lords slaughtered his son for you. You see, you need to apply the promise to the problem. Philippians 2.13. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now what does that promise do for us? When you feel weak and unable to push forward, when you feel like you don't have it in you to do the things you have, you know in your mind what you ought to do, but you don't have the, 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 the power, you don't have the, the gumption, if you will, the willpower to get up and to do it, well, good. You've just agreed with the Bible. You're right. You don't. That God works in you. He's the power that you need. Remember, you can just say to yourself, in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. Right? Yeah. You see? And so then, then you go from feeling anxious because of your weakness to actually embracing your weakness. You see, not that your weakness is, not that your, your feelings of weakness aren't merited, that something's causing you to feel this way, but the, so there's merit to it, but the, the, the bigger truth is, is that good, you ought to feel weak, you are weak, but his strength is made perfect in your weakness, and whatever it is you're anxious about, well, how does it line up to his perfect strength? It has no hope. It's going to be instantaneously obliterated. You see? What about Philippians 4, 7? What about the verse right after be anxious for nothing? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Hmm. So, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That there's a peace that you and I can experience that isn't, it's not a peace that we can logically make sense of in our head. That it's not something that we earn, it's not something that we can grab onto, it's something that just comes to us supernaturally. That God can just give us peace in a situation as we rely upon Him in things we don't even understand and in ways we, we don't get and we'll never get, but God will give us peace in that. And that you, you know, I've experienced this many times in my life where I'll have peace in a situation and I'll look back at a circumstance in my life and I'll think, wow, that was, that was a good place for me to have been afraid or anxious or stressed out and yet I had absolute utter peace. And at the time, the peace that surpasses all understanding was upon me to such a degree that I didn't even realize that I could be afraid until I'm now looking back on it and realizing that I should have been, but I'm not, or that I normally would be, but I'm not. And so you can say, God, thank you that you can bring peace into my life in ways I don't even understand. You can just bring peace into my life. What about two verses later, Philippians 4, 9? The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, Paul says, these do and the God of peace will be with you. That over and over the Bible calls God the God of peace, that he is a God who authors peace, that he is one who when he is present, peace comes with him. It's an attribute that wherever he is, it exists. And he says, well, I'll be with you and if I'm with you, peace will be with you because I'm there. And he says, well, the God of peace will be with you. That all these things that you learned, all these promises that you've heard, all these 
these truths that you've received, the things that you've seen me endure, Paul says, those things, they can bring you to a place where you realize God's with me. And just as God is the God of peace for Paul, God will be the God of peace for you, that he's with you. And that you may feel alone, you may feel distant from him, but we've learned over and over and over that we don't allow our feelings to dictate what is true. And so we, we take these promises, Philippians 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That he's got a bank account. They can never be depleted. His credit card is never declined. That he has unlimited resources in the universe. And that all of those resources are available to you. That he'll supply all your needs. He'll supply whatever you need. He'll always give you what you're in need of. He'll always be there for you. And if you think you need something and you don't have it, then it's because you didn't need it. Because his riches are limitless. And he promises, I'll supply all your needs. All of them. So you should trust me. That's why he says, don't, don't be afraid. He doesn't say, hey, stop. Stop with that fear. Stop with that anxiety. He says, don't be anxious. I'm with you. I know that that thing that you see, I know that that circumstance that you're facing, I know that that, 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 that whatever it is off in the future, I understand that all of those things are possible. I know you live in a world that's topsy-turvy. I know that in a moment's time, the things you cherish the most can be jerked out from under you. I know all that. That's why he says, don't be afraid and here's why. It's okay. It's okay. Because I'm here with you. You're my child. I'll get you through it. You just leave it, leave all the, the, the details and the circumstances of all the things that are out of your control. Just leave them to me. I mean, do you, do you ever feel like you're on top of everything that you're responsible for? Because, man, I don't. I never, for one second of one day in my life, ever feel like I'm on top of everything that's my responsibility. And if I didn't know this to be true, I would drown. I would literally drown in anxiety and stress. I mean, what about you? You know, here, here's the thing. All I can speak into is what I know, but I know this. I've never met, I've never met a man, a Christian man, who is a husband or a father 
who felt like that he was in command of all that the Scripture laid upon his shoulders. Now, I don't know how you ladies feel in here, but I can tell you one thing. Any man who knows the Bible, any man who's even remotely breezed through Ephesians 5, it's enough to bury you, to just bury you. How do you even begin to be that guy? What do you mean? Love your wife like Christ. It doesn't even matter what comes next. Anything that I'm supposed to do that's supposed to be like Jesus? Really? That I'm the priest of my home? That everything may not be my fault, but it's all my responsibility. It will crush you. So what do men do? They run away from it. They cower down. They try to block it out of their mind. They make excuses. They, instead of just owning it, own that it's real, own that it's scary, own that it's, it's there hanging over our head, and then deal with it. You got a lot of reasons to be Anxious, you got a lot of reasons to be stressed out, and you got a lot of reasons to worry. But you have better reasons to trust. And that's what I want you to know tonight. I want to give you some practical steps to take. You can write these down, or you can just uh, listen to this sermon on the website or iTunes, and you can get it then. But I'm going to give you some practical steps to take to help you with your anxiety. The first one is this. Number one, identify your form of anxiety. You know, here's what I know about stress and anxiety. That only a small portion of people who are imprisoned to stress and anxiety actually even realize that they are. Because we disguise it as other things. For example... If you are driven in everything that you do, you are a person who is just driven to excel at everything. Why is that? Do you know what we do? We, we, we raise that up on a pedestal as some great attribute. Why? Why does a man that grows up without a father driven to excel in everything he does? Why does he have to win at everything? What's broken inside? What is that? What is that anxiety, that fear of failure that makes us look so successful on the outside? See, you've got to identify what it is. You, you got to identify if it's, if it's uh, maybe you're OCD. And you just think, well, I'm just OCD. I mean, some doctor diagnosed me and that's what I am. What is that? It's the desire to control things that are out of your control. 
that if you can just straighten things up or wash your hands 75 times or lock the doors 36 times or whatever you have to do, you just want to control something that's out of control. That's what it is. It's no different from the person who is, is, lives in fear that someone's going to abandon them or something is going to happen. It's, it's a form of anxiety. Some of you maybe your anxiety kicks in and you just become so irritable nobody can be around you. And so unexplainably for some reason, unbeknownst to the people who live with you, you just go through these cycles of utter and complete irritability where everything is your enemy, everybody is your enemy. Why? Because that's your mechanism of dealing with stress. It's just the way it comes out. And so people just label you as moody or bipolar or something, which maybe you are or maybe you're not. But simply what I'm saying is, is that it can, anxiety can disguise itself as things that we oftentimes don't associate with being anxiety. Withdrawal. Some people just withdraw. Just back away from everybody. Don't want to associate with anybody. That's their anxiety. So you've got to identify. You've got to say... You know, am I anxious? How am I anxious? How does anxiety... Because I find it hard to believe that you're sitting here tonight and you live in the same world I live in and you're just like, nah, man, I got this. Like, I really want to talk to you after the service. So what do you do? How do you cope with it? Maybe there's an addiction. So when anxiety comes, you find yourself drawn to some addiction, something that's going to help you escape, some, you know, some... Have you ever just found yourself... Uh, you, you don't... You're, you're not consciously thinking about what's going on, but all of a sudden you just, you just want to sit in front of the TV like a zombie. You don't want to answer your phone. You don't want to have a conversation. You just want to sit there like a zombie. That's your way of just dealing with your anxiety. I'm just going to deny it, and I'm just going to live vicariously somewhere else, and I'm just going to push myself away from it. I think that's one of the reasons why we love to go to the movies. People love the movies so much is because... For two hours, everything in their life is okay. And then they walk out and the sun hits them in the eyes and they realize, wow, I'm still that messed up person. Identify your form of anxiety. Number two, gather your reasons for trust. It's important now. You need to underline the word your. You need to gather your reasons for trust. In other words, you need to look through the Bible and you need to find promises that address your anxiety. That what you identified in number one is what you're going to do in number two. You see, the, the promises that are so meaningful in Scripture to me are different than the ones that are so meaningful to you. They're all true and they're all wonderful, but the ones that I gravitate towards meet my soul in a special way where I'm broken in a certain way that's different from you. And so whatever it is that you're anxious about, you need promises that address that. So you identify those. And then you 
you look through Scripture and you take note of the things that the Bible says, the things that Jesus says that sort of seem completely foreign to you, because it will help you. Those are little indicators of ding, 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 here's your problem. The only way for me to explain this would be a little moment of confession. So like if I'm reading the New Testament and Jesus says, consider the lilies. I just want to go right on by that. I don't want to consider the lilies. I want to get done what's the next thing on my list. I want to make sure that I'm productive. I want to make sure that I'm driven. I want to make sure that I'm doing. I don't want to consider the lilies. You see, that phrase ministers to my anxiety. Some of you, I, when I did Miss, uh, Miss Bobby's funeral last week, she was a spectacular lady in so many ways. And one of the things that uh, is just so remarkable about Miss Bobby is that she would drive all her grandkids. She had like a gazillion grandkids and a gazillion great-grandkids, and she'd drive them all crazy because she would come in the room and she would say, turn the TV off. And they'd go, ah, oh, and they'd turn the TV off. What are we going to do? And she'd say, come on, sit down. Let's look out the window. And they're like, Seriously? And she loved to just sit and look out the window. You see, if, if you do that, I so envy that. So what I have to do is I have to go climb up a mountain for a week where I can't get a cell phone call and I can't get distracted by something else and I can't not notice everything that's around me and, I, and that's my thing. That's, my, that's how I consider the lilies. But I'm just saying that when you're reading the New Testament and something comes along, you know, like if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your anxiety is always, if you check your bank account 14 times a day and you're always stressed out about your savings and you you're live in fear that you're going to go broke, and then what should you do? When you're reading the Bible and it says, well, consider the birds of the air. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They don't store anything up in barns. And guess what? Whenever they need food, it's there. And that seems totally foreign to you. You ought to hone in on that and go, that's for me. That's for me. You see, that's what I'm saying. You, you need to gather your reasons for trust. Number three, name your troubles and anxieties. Stop allowing them to be these, they're just, oh, I'm just anxious. Oh, I'm just... I'm just upset. Oh, I'm, I'm a worrier. Oh, I'm no, no, no. That's not going to get it. You need to get down to it. I, I want you to write down, what are you worried about? What are you anxious about? Name them. What are they? Write them down. If you can't name them, then you can't worry about them. You can't, you can't say, God, I'm just worried. Not about anything. Just worried. No, that's not true. There's something there. Write it down. Name it. Force yourself to actually put it down so you have to look at it and go, okay, that's what I'm afraid of. That's what I'm anxious about. That's what I'm fearful over. That's it right there. 
It'll be a, it'll be a blessing to you when you do that. You know why? Because right now, some of you, you, you just, you're, you're, you're going, man, I mean, you just don't have any idea how bad I need this. And what's going to happen? You're going to sit down and write them out. And you know what you're going to find out? The list ends. And you know, most of the time when you're fraught with anxiety and worry, it seems endless. But when you write it down, you find out it's not endless. It's a finite list. And you've got one, two, three, or five, six, seven, or however many things. But that's all they are. Like it's going to, the list will end. You're not going to just ride and ride and ride and ride and ride and ride and ride. It will end some point. And when it ends, you're like, you know what? It's not endless. There it is. I've got it quantified right in front of me. Identify the things that, that when, you're, when you're doing that, here's what it's going to show you. It's going to show you the things that capture your heart. The things that, that jump you off course are the things that are they're idols in your life. That like, when it, whenever you say, like, I'm doing good with God, and I'm walking with God, and things are going my way, and then when this happens, boom, I'm off the trip. Well, that thing right there, that's an idol. That thing has got your heart. Because God only has your heart as long as that thing's not there. But if that thing gets there, so if there's a person in your life that as soon as they come into your world, as soon as they ring your doorbell, as soon as they get home from work, as soon as they whatever it is, and then all of a sudden you're derailed off, then that is the problem right there. That they're taking precedence over the Lord. That thing, that person, that situation, that circumstance has captivated your heart. All right, quickly, number four, have the honest conversation. The thing I know about us when we're anxious and we're filled with uh, fears is that when we, when, we, when we pray, when we have a conversation with God, we just start babbling about stuff. We just start saying, God, I'm just so afraid. Yeah, I, yeah, he knows that. He knows everything, your thoughts and intentions of your heart. But what you need to do is you need to have an honest conversation with him. You need to be frank and open with God. You need to take all the things that you've learned in 1, 2, and 3, and you need to apply them into your prayer life. You need to pray and confess to God all these things that you're fearful of and anxious over and all these things that you're afraid are going to happen and why they're going to and all that. You need to get all that out on the table and just lay it out there. Read what people in Scripture did when they found themselves in these dark, desolate moments. Read Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. Read Elijah's prayer in the middle of uh, the wilderness. Read Paul in 2 Corinthians. Read, just pick a spot. And what you're going to find is they are honest with God. Job pours his heart out to God. Number five, do what needs doing today. The greatest power that your worry and anxiety has over you is prophecy. The anchor that enslaves you to worry and panic and anxiety is prophecy. It's the fear that something in the future Horrible is going to happen. That, that something in, the, in a day that's not here yet is going to get you. 
And Jesus speaks directly into that in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Don't do that. Now, does he say, hey, there's no problems. You don't have problems. Don't worry about tomorrow. Everything's fine. No, he doesn't say that. He says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know what Jesus says? Hey, it's a tough world. You're going to have problems today. They're going to be real problems. But you know what? Don't worry about tomorrow because that's not going to do you any good. Focus on today. Do what you can do today. Today. Please listen to what I'm begging you to do. There is so much victory in these simple principles. You're a parent. And you are stressed out about life decisions that your grown child is going to make. You have no control over that. They're not making the decision today. You're just afraid that they might make them. You're just afraid that they could make them. You see markers in their life that are indicators that trouble is on the horizon. So what should you do? Should you ignore the indicators? No. The Bible says that he who sees danger should take refuge. So what do you do? You do what you can do today. That means when you are worried that your child is going to make decisions they shouldn't make and you can't control that in the future, then today sit down and write them a letter and tell them how much you love them and put scripture in it and put a stamp on it and mail it and say, okay, I did that today. And then you wake up tomorrow and you're anxious about it, then do, do, pick up the phone and call them and encourage them. Call somebody that, that, that lives in the town they live in. Call a pastor and say, hey, will you go visit my son or visit my daughter? Do what you can do today, but don't be enslaved to what hasn't come yet. You understand? People, I talk to people all the time, and they are literally paralyzed in fear that their, their spouse is going to leave them. And I always say the same thing. I say, you know what? I don't know if your spouse is going to leave you or not, but, he, but here's, some, here's the best advice I can give you. Devote yourself today to being the greatest spouse you can be today. And you know what? We'll cross the bridge tomorrow when we get to tomorrow. Just today. Just today. Not, not tomorrow, not next week, not down. Today. You see, that's what the birds teach me. That's what the lilies teach me, and that's what the grass teach me. All things I don't want to learn. They teach me that today, today, they don't last. It's just today. So if you were, if you were a a Jew in the Old Testament, If you were in captivity in Egypt and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, and through this sequence of just mind-boggling events, God had freed you from captivity. And all you'd ever known is enslavement and captivity and, and the horrors of that, and suddenly you find yourself in this great big wilderness free, but it doesn't feel that free. It feels kind of scary. Because at least when you were there, you knew 
what to expect. But now you're just walking through this strange land led by this God who reveals himself in these strange clouds and pillars of fire. And so every morning when you wake up, you get out of your tent and there's manna on the ground. And you, you think, this is amazing. And you start eating that manna. And Moses tells you, now you, you can't store up any manna. You just eat all the manna you want, but only for today. And so you gorge yourself. Because you're not sure that it's going to come through tomorrow. And then you wake up the next day and you get out of your tent. And there's manna on the ground. And you're like, wow. And so you start eating that manna. And then the next day you wake up and there's manna. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. How many days will it take before you wake up and without even thinking, you just intuitively grab your pot, walk outside, because you know that the manna is going to be there. How long will it take? What's the manna in the New Testament? What's outside your tent every morning when you wake up? Every day when you open your eyes, what manna is waiting for you? Grace. Not grace that you can store up for tomorrow, but all the grace you need for whatever it is you're going to face today. No matter how hard, no matter how unexpected, no matter how scary, all the grace you need for today is there every single day. But you can't store it up for tomorrow. You know why? It's the same reason why the children of Israel couldn't store up their manna. Because if you stored up your grace for tomorrow, then you wouldn't need God tomorrow. And so He doesn't work that way. He gives you the grace you need for today. Because He wants you to trust Him. So when you open your eyes tomorrow morning, maybe the first thought that you have is, God, thank you for another day with manna. All I can eat today. Thank you. Let's stand and bow our heads.